Now for the next few weeks I'm going to do something that I've never done before and at the same time I can say I'm going to do something that uh, I have done before but don't usually do. What I don't usually do is um, to preach on themes or topics. I usually preach expositionally but I'm not going to preach expositionally for the next three weeks and what I've never done before is preach someone else's sermon material and that's really what I'm going to do this morning I acknowledge that most of the material that I'm going to give you in the next few weeks is material that came to us via our good friend Pastor Stuart Latimer those who were at Curry Conference a few uh, years ago will remember his ministry he gave us uh, series at the pastor's conference last year and in the course of that he said to us now you can take this material and uh, use it with your own people so I said right I'll do that because I felt it was such very helpful material well obviously I'm putting it through my own mill and um, molding it a little bit after my own fashion but uh, basically I'm indebted to him for it he phoned me in fact last week about another issue of concern to us both and uh, before he went I said now before you go I want to tell you something I'm going to preach your sermons in the next few weeks in my church and I told him what I was going to do he said oh that's okay because I just preached it from someone else anyway he said uh, most of this material comes from Jay Adams and Wayne Mack well I knew that uh, to some degree I recognized that when he was uh, speaking to it at the pastor's conference so he said that's okay you go right ahead so I'm going to speak for three weeks uh, on handling problems because I think this will be helpful to many in our congregation handling problems and uh, I want this morning to just uh, in a sense uh, give an introduction to the subject I'm going to deal with general principles that we need to lay hold on in terms of uh, handling problems uh, next week God willing I'm going to deal with understanding our problems having insight into our problems and then the third week God willing we'll come to the application of biblical uh, passages and principles specifically in coping with them and hopefully adequately dealing with them so I want to begin this morning by a very simple assertion and that is that everybody has problems well it doesn't need a profound man to say that does it but it does need to be said everybody has problems sometimes you see we do fail to grasp this we see certain people you know and certain families and uh, to all outward appearances they seem to have no problems at all they seem to be just you know the perfect man the perfect woman the perfect family and we find ourselves saying oh if only I was like them oh they don't have any problems they don't have any difficulties of course outward appearances deceive and the fact is that everybody without exception has problems Christians have problems and I'm speaking this morning particularly to those who are biblical Christians who know the Lord Christians have problems Christians sometimes are guilty of trying to suggest they don't have problems somehow they think that they have to put on a facade and a front as though they are Mr. or Mrs. Perfect and so mightily are their attainments in spiritual things that they don't have any problems frankly I don't believe you if you're telling me that Christians have problems everybody has problems it's part of the human condition to have problems 
It is a fallacy that has been foisted upon Christians by misguided evangelists and teachers that when you become a Christian, when you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that all of your problems evaporate and disappear. That is a fallacy. It is ridiculous. It is true that some problems are dealt with and disappear by virtue even of our very conversion. That's true, some, many times. That certain problems we have, if we are soundly converted by the grace of God, we're delivered from them. And we're kept from other certain kinds of problems by virtue of being Christians. But Christians do have problems. And in fact, sometimes Christians, by virtue of being Christians, have peculiar problems that non-Christians don't have and that we do have. So we have to realize that. We have to be honest and recognize it. The fact is, of course, that God never promised that his people would be free from problems. Jesus Christ never promised that his followers would be delivered from their problems. Indeed, the Bible states in Job 5 and verse 7 that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Just as sure, you know, when you make the fire... Uh, on the uh, beach or whatever it might be outside your cottage or whatever you make the fire and you stir it up you know with the stick and all the flames fly upwards yeah I remember in Nova Scotia when we uh, made our fire that uh, certain young folk who were with us liked to get dry seaweed and throw it into the fire and then they'd stir it up and it'd boil the sparks and come up well the sparks you know they never sort of went down into the beach they always went upwards the Bible says that as the sparks fly upwards, we are born into trouble. It's part of life, part of the human condition to have trouble. Even the writings of the great apostle Paul, a mighty man of God, reveal that he himself had his troubles. For instance, let me read you what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. He says, for indeed when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul knew what it was to be downcast. He knew what it was to be discouraged. He knew what it was to have fears within him. He knew what it was to have problems on every side. On him, of course, the cur of all the churches. So let us not fool ourselves or try and fool others. Let us acknowledge, yes, we have problems. Everybody has problems of some kind or another. Now the second thing to lay down is this, that Christians can solve their problems. Christians can solve their problems. Not, of course, by our own wisdom or our own power. Not by virtue of anything of our own, but Christians can solve their problems. Now I want you to look at me at 1 Corinthians 10 and the 13th verse, which was the end of the reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 10:13, a very significant verse. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now the word temptation, as we have it translated here in our New King James Version and in the uh, 1611 King James, may be translated by a couple of other words. For instance, by the word testing. 
or by the word trial. And it may be the word testing if that's the best word because the word temptation in our day has become very restricted. It has become narrow in its channel. But the word that is used in the original language here has a rather larger, more extensive meaning. Perhaps covered by that word testing, as I've suggested. So that the apostle is saying that there is no testing, of course temptations included in that, in the narrow sense. There is no testing which has overtaken you except such as is common to man and so on. Now this statement therefore is giving us I think four things to consider. First of all that there is no such thing as a totally unique problem. There is no testing says the apostle that's overtaken you except such as is common to man. There it is in verse 13. There is no such thing as a totally unique problem. Now people of course insist that there are. Nobody has had the problem that they've got. Nobody has had the difficulty that's besetting them. Nobody's ever experienced the things that they're experiencing. No one's ever gone through the circumstances that they're going through. But God says it isn't so. It isn't so. You may think that, you may say that, but it isn't so. You remember the repeated refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun and again it's not talking of course about uh, new things such as aeroplanes and automobiles it's talking about the human condition uh, human nature, human relationships and so forth there's nothing new under the sun there is no problem that is unique that you have that no one else has ever experienced no God says no testing has taken you except such as is common to man. Secondly, the text tells us that God is faithful. God is faithful. And this, of course, is at the very heart of the Apostle's encouragement here. But God is faithful. Therefore, God will not fail you. If you're one of His, you're a believer, you're a child of God, God will not fail you. God will never deceive you. God will never prove unreliable. God will never go contrary to his word. He never will. God is faithful. No matter what the external circumstances seem to be, no matter what the depth of the problem that you're entering into, this stands written, God is faithful. We must hold on to that. The third thing the text tells us, of course, is that God will never allow a problem into your life that it is impossible to cope with. Utterly impossible to cope with it the Bible says that's not going to happen for see what it says but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able so there is no problem there is no difficulty going to enter into the life of a believer that is going to be utterly impossible for that person to cope with what the word of God is saying I think in this verse I think I'm treating it fairly and rightly no problem no testing beyond what you are able and the fourth thing that the verse says of course is that God will make provision for you to deal with the problem so Paul says but with the testing he will also make the way of escape now notice it doesn't end there when he says the way of escape he doesn't mean to run away from it he doesn't mean that he's going to remove the problem, but he says that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape is not 
a hat that you run through. People, of course, all of us are prone this way to run from problems. But Paul says you're going to be able to bear it. God will make a way of escape that will be ability to bear the problem, ability to cope with the problem. Now, this is what God says in this particular verse. The question is, do we believe this verse? Do we really believe this statement? We say, of course, it's a matter of creedal orthodoxy. We believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration and the authority of the Word of God. Yes, but sometimes, you know, that's in our creed, but sometimes it's not in our heart. Do we believe this? Do we believe what this verse is saying? J. Adams, in one of his books, uh, tells of driving in the area of Colorado Springs in the United States. And he says there's a certain road there that you're driving along and it seems to just go right into a total rock face. And as you're driving down this road, you see this thing massive before you. There's no way around it. You think, man, what's going to happen here? And you're driving down and you see this little slit, what seems to be a little slit in the rock face. And the road is narrowing. And then there's this little slit, and you're driving along, he says, and you're thinking, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to get through here. And he says, as you get closer to this uh, rock face, there's a great big sign on the side of the road. It says, Narrows. Yes, you can. <laughs> Millions others have. <laughs> you see, the, the people knew what everybody was going to be thinking. You know, they'd say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't get through Yes, you can, it says. Yes, you can. A million others have. And Adam says in a few moments, you're one million and one. You've gone through it. You see? Yes, you can. Now, people say, of course, ah, but you don't know my wife. Or the wife says, ah, but you don't know my husband. Ah, says the child, you don't know my parents. Says the teenager, you know. Oh, yes, all right. But you don't know my parents. You don't know what they're like. Ah, you don't know my, my place of work. You don't know my boss. You don't know my fellow workers. You don't know my circumstances. And what they're really saying and what we are saying when we say those things is, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot. And God says, you can. You can. You can. The problem is not that we cannot. The problem is, we will not. We will not. See, 1 Corinthians 10.13 allows for no exception. There is no testing, says the Apostle. There is no testing that's taken you. But that which is common to man, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. He will make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear. Now we believe in the sovereignty of God, don't we? In this church, it's one of our distinctives. We believe in the sovereignty of God, unashamedly. Ah, yes, but do we practice it? Do we really practice it? Is it not so? And I'm preaching to myself, dear friend. I couldn't preach this way with my wife in the congregation if I didn't acknowledge that. I'm preaching to myself. Because every Christian, the strongest of Christians, sometimes has a tragic gap between what they believe and the way they act. Now, I've told you this story before, but it's a true one, and some might not have heard it. I'm going to tell it again. It's the story, a wonderful story of Martin Luther and his wife, 
You know, his wife was called Katie. I want Katie to know that. Katie, Katie uh, Van Boren, I think, was her single name. And she married Luther. And uh, here's this mighty man of God, you know, in this tremendous reformation in Germany and Europe and so on. But he had a lot of problems. Poor Luther had a lot of difficulties and problems and so forth. And he was in a particularly trying time in the Reformation history. And everything was going wrong. Ever been in that at that point? <laughs> everything was going wrong, you know. And he got depressed. He really got depressed. And he locked himself in his study. Two or three days he was in his study. And he was just down in the depths. And his wife couldn't do anything about it. She, Katie couldn't do anything for him. But one day Katie came into his study all dressed in funeral robes. Black dress, black veil, black hat, black as can be, everything black. And uh, Luther jumped up, he said, Katie, what's the matter? What's, who's died? Who's died? Oh, she says, Martin, didn't you know? God has died. What? says Luther, because Luther was a volcanic fellow. What? He says, woman, what are you talking about? And he began to rebuke her and remonstrate with her. And she said, oh, Martin, I thought by your behavior that God had died. Well, Luther came out of his depression. It went like an arrow to his heart. He is a man who believed in the sovereignty of God and preached the sovereignty of God. But at that point in time, he was not allowing that conviction to really affect his behavior. He was depressed. He was down. He was worried. He was saying, it's all up. It's all over. There's no hope. Ah, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Just as long as God is on the throne. But sometimes we lose sight of this, you see, and we become what B.B. Warfield once called in a very insightful phrase, practical atheist. And never forget reading that expression. It was in a very powerful article he wrote and it really convicted me. Practical atheist. He said there are people who believe in God but they live as though they don't. They're practical atheists. Boy, that really convicted me because I was worrying about something at the time. I was worrying very much about something. And I said, Lord, I'm a practical atheist. I'm, I'm behaving as though you don't exist. We say, I cannot, the problem's too much. God says, you can, if you will. If you will. See, this sovereign God designs our problems to fit us. And this sovereign God uses our problems in very positive ways. You know, I love that first hymn that we sang together this morning. I, I, we sing it quite a bit, but I chose it for just one line in it this morning. Just one line and sanctify to us our deepest distress. God does that. God uses our problems. God uses our difficulties. And he uses them as instruments in our sanctification. And he teaches us humility through these difficulties. He teaches us dependence on himself. He teaches us compassion for others. You know, there's nothing that will make you more compassionate than going through the problem yourself, eh? Oh, there's a lot of people, and this is one right here who used to be this way quite a bit. You know, there's somebody and they're a little weaker than you, they have a little less health than you maybe, or they have areas of difficulty you don't have, and man, you get so impatient with them. What's the matter with this guy? What's the matter with this woman? Why don't they get moved? Why don't they do this and that? And then you get what they've got. <laughs> you suffer what they're suffering. You go through the same experiences. There's nothing like that to teach a compassion, right? <laughs> 
God uses all of these things to sanctify us, to teach us. He teaches us prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Ah, things are going well for us, you know, and we begin to imagine that uh, they'll always go well. We're over the hump. You know, everything is wonderful. And you know what begins to happen? You begin to sit down on your prayer life and so God sends a big thorn in your bed and he sticks this in you just good and hard and next thing you know you're crying to God and you're praying to God, yeah? God uses these things to move us out of our prayerfulness. But you see, they don't need to crush us. This is the thing. These problems do have solutions. The Lord Jesus Christ, let us remember, had problems. Let us remember that he was truly man. He was very man of very man. Truly man. And he experienced problems. He had a problem with loneliness. He had a problem with desertion. He had a problem of opposition. He had the problem of misunderstanding. He had problem of people constantly hounding him, looking for, for trouble to catch him up. Problems of slander, as they said things about him that weren't true. All kinds of problems, and yet this glorious man of Calvary, this great man of Nazareth, our Lord Jesus Christ, he dealt with his problems, he handled them. And he is our great example, and we are to follow him. And he says to us, yes, you can handle your problems. That's the second thing that we need to lay down as an introductory principle. Christians can solve their problems. The third thing is this. Solving problems does take work. It does take work. And one of the troubles, the problems in a sense that we face today is the demand, of course, for instant cures. We're living in a day of instant cures, supposedly. We want magical answers. It's the day of the quick fix, right? The quick fix. And uh, so when we come to spiritual matters and difficulties that we might have and interpersonal relationships and so forth, we want a fast answer. We want a quick fix. It's got to be today. It's got to be fixed today. And it's amazing that people are prepared to spend all kinds of time fixing other things. They've got a problem in terms of their education. They need further education. Well, they'll spend years getting that education, quote, fixed up. They've got uh, physical needs uh, around the house, problems around the house. Well, they'll devote time to doing it. Time will be taken to fix up this house. Whatever it might be. People are prepared to devote time on all kinds of things, but in order to get their lives fixed up, to get their lives the way God would have their lives, they're not prepared to spend time. But my dear friend, we must spend time in these areas. Problem solving does demand time. But you know, this is, we see this working out, you see, in, in, in today. The marriage has problems, walk away from it. Divorce, quick fix, quick answer, get out of it. A woman is pregnant, it's a problem to her, and she's not got a lot of finances. Abortion, quick fix, fix. Tragic, tragic, tragic. But people see where they want the easy way out. And Christians have to be prepared to work at their problem. Someone has said that the great question of this generation is, how do I get away from my pain? That's the question of this generation. How do I get away from my pain? Feeling good has become the supreme issue. And the supreme goal, the ultimate goal, feeling good. 
How do I get away from my pain? And so they run from problems. They smash their marriages or their babies or whatever and they run away from these things instead of taking time to fix them, to work on them according to the principles of the Word of God. Let me say this, dear friends, the great issue for Christians ought, ought to be this. The great issue for Christians is this. Do we do what we feel like doing or do we do what God says we ought to do? Now I want you to think about this. See, this is a day that is feeling orientated. Feeling orientated. People want to feel good. And sometimes the path of duty doesn't make you feel good for a while. And so people say, well, I don't feel like doing it. I mean on the very most superficial level you get up in the morning and teenage son or teenage daughter says I don't feel like going to church today right maybe mum and dad say I don't feel like going to church today the question is are we to do what we feel like doing or do we do what God says we ought to do so I have a problem with my wife or a wife has a problem with her husband and, and it just doesn't seem to be getting resolved and it makes life very difficult and very awkward and, and very painful. And the husband or the wife said, I don't feel like devoting time to working on this marriage. But the question is again, do we do what we feel like doing or do we do what God says we ought to do? That's the question. And there's a sense in which that is becoming very much the great issue of our day even in churches even amongst Christian people this is becoming the issue that word ought is not a very popular word anymore in this generation the word duty certainly not a very popular word anymore the great thing is I've got to feel good and it doesn't matter what I do so long as I feel good but God says, listen, if you're a believer, you must do what I tell you to do. You must live your life the way I tell you to live your life. And the amazing thing, of course, is, as we'll see later on in this series, that to live according to God is the way to ultimate blessing, contentment, satisfaction, call it what you will. Those things are, in fact, the byproduct of obedience. That's what this generation doesn't understand. And pursuing happiness with all of their intensity and power, they never find it. So most people never find it. Because it is a byproduct of something else, and that something else is obedience to God our Maker and our Creator. So are we going to do what we feel like doing, or are we going to do what God says we ought to do? Brother Latimer, in the uh, last year, he told us of a lady who wrote him a letter saying that she was going, in his words, to dump her husband. She was going to dump her husband. And he said she wrote him this long letter explaining why, giving all the justification. And he said this woman, the amazing thing was, this woman was a Christian woman and she never once made reference to God in the letter. She never once made reference to her relationship to God in the letter. Not once. How, you know, how can Christians do that? How can Christians act like that? 
You know them. Because they do what they feel like doing instead of doing what God says they ought to do. Now all of us, dear friends, are responsible to work on our problems. And we are to work on them according to God's solutions that God has given in His Word. And we shall see, as I say later in the series, more of that. But we are responsible to work on our problems. God has given these encouragements, 1 Corinthians 10.13 amongst them. These encouragements to do just that. Work on them. And it takes time. Now the last thing I want to just say this morning in preparation for the next two Sunday mornings is simply this, that the Bible has the answer to our problems. Now I don't agree with everything that J. Adams says, I don't suppose anybody agrees with everything anybody says, right, in books or in sermons or whatever. So I don't agree with everything he says, there's certain things that I would uh, beg... uh, liberty to differ with him from, but I've always been very very grateful for this, that he was in a very real sense the main man, in recent decades anyway, to bring evangelicals back to recognize the resources and the riches of the scriptures in terms of the problems of life. And in terms of the nitty-gritty problems of interpersonal relationships and all the rest of it, he gave us to see that we don't have to rush off to the psychiatrist, rush off to the psychologist. I'm not against them. I'll say something about that in a minute. But he gave us to say, listen, know your Bible and apply the principles of the Bible to your life and you'll discover that there's a mine of rich resource here that most of us have never really gotten into. I'm grateful for him for that. Biblical counsel, he emphasized. Biblical living. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very well-known passage, but we usually, it's well-known usually for the 15th verse, and it needs to be well-known for the 16th and 17th as well. Or should I say it's well-known for the first part of of verse 16, I suppose that's more accurate. It's well-known for the first part of verse 16, it ought to be known for the latter part and the verse 17 as well. Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. But that's not where he starts, is it? He goes on and says, and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture, says the apostle, are profitable for teaching, for reproof. That is, when we're going wrong, the Bible will put its finger on where we're going wrong and press and say, this, you're wrong in this. We read the scriptures. You remember last Sunday night I said that one of the reasons people don't read their Bibles is because it's convicting. It convicts them. Yes, it will. It'll reprove us. It'll say you're wrong doing what you're doing, saying what you're saying, taking the attitude that you're taking. You're wrong, the scripture will tell us. Where we are wrong. And says Paul, it is profitable for correction. In other words, 
it will move us out of the wrong way into the right way it will set us on the right course and furthermore says Paul it will provide instruction in righteousness it will tell us how to live rightly before God how to live righteously before him and the whole idea says Paul is that the man of God the child of God may be complete mature rounded thoroughly equipped for every good work now I don't want you to draw the conclusion from that that Christians are to have no dealings with the medical profession I don't want you to draw that conclusion because it would be very foolish and very erroneous some do I'm mentioning because some do there are branches of the Christian church where there are people who will say well you know a Christian ought never to need to visit a doctor well that to me is just absolute foolishness don't draw that conclusion from this in fact it's good to remind folk that the two books of the Bible were written by a physician Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts also written by Luke who was a physician described in the Bible itself as the beloved physician Sometimes problem behavior is assumed to have a spiritual cause when in fact it has a physical cause. I remember Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in one of his books and of course Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant physician before he was a great preacher and he kept up his reading and his knowledge in the realm of the uh, physician's art all the way through his life. He says that he used to read the Lancet, the English Medical Journey, for relaxed reading on Saturday evening. I don't think that would be too relaxing for me. But he used, to, he, he used to find it that way, I suppose. He says he remembers an occasion when there was a man in his church who had come for help after the service. And uh, Lloyd-Jones had been somewhat tied up and some of the deacons had been speaking with him. And uh, they said, oh, doctor, you better come and deal with this man. He has tremendous spiritual problems. This fellow has just terrific spiritual problems. And they talked to him a little bit about him and Lloyd-Jones said he came out. He said, I took one look at that man and knew that his problems were not spiritual at all. This man was anemic. <laughs> he said, I could see this man was anemic. And uh, he, he sent him for treatment in this area and the man's problems cleared up. Now we have to recognize that. Sometimes, you know, we get some fanatical people and they're fasting and praying and even trying to cast out demons from some poor soul and all he needs is a visit to an intelligent doctor. It happens. I'm not exaggerating. This happens. We must be careful that we don't draw erroneous conclusions. Glandular problems, hormonal problems, and imbalance, and vitamin deficiencies, and all these kind of things can have a tremendous effect upon people. And we are a whole unit. God has made us as a unit. Body and soul as a unit. And so the one affects the other. Again, we'll see that later on. And so sometimes problem behavior that is assumed to have spiritual roots sometimes proves to have physical causes. And that has to be checked out. That has to be checked out. Is there an organic problem here that this person has? Now some psychologists and some psychiatrists are indeed hostile to the Christian faith. That's a, that's a fact. Many people know 
some are hostile to the Christian faith. But they're not all that way. And it would be foolish for us to write up all psychiatrists and all psychologists as though they can be of no help whatsoever to anybody. Indeed, Dr. John White, Canadian psychiatrist and author of many excellent and helpful books, some of them in our own library, is an example of a man who is a Christian psychiatrist and I wish we had him in our area. We could certainly give him lots of business and make a good use of him. These people can be of tremendous benefit and help. Men who have studied these disciplines and who are coming at the whole thing from the perspective of a believer in the Word of God. It would be very helpful. Now allowing for all that, acknowledging all that, I come back and say that nevertheless the Holy Scriptures have been given to us for the purposes outlined in Paul's words right here. In the Bible we find God's directives for holy and happy living. And you know the old Puritans have said it a thousand times and many have repeated it since that God has tied holiness and happiness together. And that's true. God has tied holiness and happiness together. That's why when people go after happiness as such ignoring God and his word and the Christian gospel and faith they very seldom if ever find it. That's why our world today bent as it is upon the seeking of pleasure and full of hedonistic philosophy is nevertheless a miserable world with suicide rates up, divorce rates up, suicides amongst teenagers even and all the rest of it. Why? Because, my dear friends, God our Maker has tied holiness to happiness and happiness to holiness. And if you want to be happy, be holy. The holiest people are the happiest people. God has tied them together. And it's here in the Bible, in the Scriptures, that God gives us directives for holy and happy living. The Scriptures, you see, are not only sufficient for salvation. Paul tells us that in verse 15 of this passage in 2 Timothy 3. But they are not only sufficient for salvation, to guide us and direct us into the way of salvation, they are sufficient to tell us how to live, and how to live holy, and how to live happily and contentedly, and how to solve problems and get solutions to them. And it will be our own loss, dear friends, if we are ignorant of the Scriptures. It will be our loss if we are ignorant of the Scriptures. And when we say the Bible has the answer, you see, I'm not talking about the Bible as a magic book. Some people think the Bible is a magic book. They think if they read ten verses a day, their problems will disappear. That's treating the Bible like a magic book. You know, you waft it over something and presto it goes. No, no, the Bible's not a magic book. You have to apply yourself to the Bible. You have to study the Bible so that you can learn the principles of the Bible and the directives for living that God has placed in the Bible. And then you have to work at implementing those principles and applying them to your problems. It's not magic. It's knowing the Scriptures and working at applying the Scriptures to our lives. That brings us to the solution of problems. And so these things we have to get down before we go any further. 
But everybody has problems. You, me, everybody has problems. Christians can solve their problems. Remember the narrows in Colorado Springs. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Problems take work, hard work, and we have to work on them. And the answers ultimately are found in God's holy word. And I'm aware this morning I've been speaking to those who are believers in Christ. Let me just say to those who might be here this morning unsaved, unconverted, not Christians. But my dear friend, that's the biggest problem that you've got to solve right there before you solve any other for if you are out of fellowship with God and if you do not know the grace, the power and the spirit of God in your life there is no solving of your problem to be without Christ is to be under the wrath of God and to be heading for a Christless eternity oh my friend I would say that at least this morning you should search and seek the Lord as he has said that you should come as a sinner to Jesus Christ repenting of sin and trusting in him getting right with God that's not going to cause your problems to evaporate as I've said but it will bring you into that perspective and into that relationship with God that will enable you to deal with life's problems in an adequate way or that you if you're unconverted this morning might recognize your need of the Lord Jesus the Christian brother and sister take these things think them over this week and let's come together next Lord's Day morning ready to uh, move further into this and to try and get some understanding and some light on the cause and the character of our problems May the Lord help us to live holy and happy lives for his own glory. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that you have made provision for your people in every way. We bless you for the scriptures which are sufficient not only to bring us to Christ and lead us into the way of salvation but are sufficient also for us to live a life that is holy and happy and a life that will be blessed. Oh, a life, our God, in which our problems can be adequately dealt with. Father, we pray that you would help us and lead us on. And in this brief series, we ask that you would grant us the enlightenment of the Spirit. And to your name shall we give all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 345.